Okay, welcome to the School of Faith podcast. This is uh, a ministry of Awakening Church in the Silicon Valley, where we exist to awaken this generation to new life in Jesus Christ. And uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I'm here with my good friend, Jay Kim, who is a uh, lead pastor for teaching over at Westgate Church. We are not far from each other right now. However, uh, we're still climbing out of this pandemic, so we're not really in person as I'd like to be. But um, Jay has been a friend for a long time and is the author of this book. We're going to kind of kick around a little bit, but Jay, I think we can just talk about a lot of different pastoral issues right now around the church. But here's his book, Analog Church. Highly, highly recommend this book. The subtitle, Why We Need Real People, Places and Things in the Digital Age. Um, super, super awesome. And release this book, Jay, I remember, wait, right after the, the shutdown? When did it come out? Two weeks after Shelter, like after Tom Hanks got COVID. Yeah. That's my marker in my mind. Like Tom Hanks got COVID and then I stayed home for a year. <laughs> Yeah, dude. Um, Jay, thanks for doing this, bro. Oh, man. I'm thrilled to be on. Yeah. Uh, for you as a friend and for awakening. Um, yeah. So happy to be on. Sweet, man. So let's start with the obvious with the pandemic, because um, I do want to have this conversation kind of around what is the church going to look like as we get out of this, Lord willing. Um, I actually just got my first vaccine dose today, so I'm feeling healthy and ready to go. A lot of my church, I feel like every day I hear about a new person either getting the vaccine or just feeling comfortable coming back to church. You and you, your church, my church, we've started, I think, around the same time doing in-person gatherings. But what we've noticed and what I really want to talk about is that the church and Christians have changed a ton in how we're thinking about the church over the last year. So I'm going to start with the biggest question, and then I'll give you this, the softballs, okay, or whatever. But this is like a question I want you to just kind of, yeah, take your time with if you want to talk on this for a while. I want to know, I'm super curious for you, man, after this whole year, considering the pandemic, considering the book that you've written that's really about embodied presence in worship, what would you say are like, man, off the top of my head, the top three things I've really learned, two or three things that you're like, these are just kind of like right off the bat, this is what I learned this year, pastoring a church through the pandemic with the passion you have of like embodied presence in worship. That's my million dollar question for you that I want you to take whatever direction you want to. Yeah. Holy smokes, man. That is a big question. Yeah. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is... It, it's personal and pastoral. I personally underestimate, you know, when, when we were about to shut down and we knew we were shutting down and we were having staff meetings at our church about, hey, everyone's going to work from home and we got a Zoom account for our staff and here's how you log in and we'll see you online. You know, when we were having those meetings, I anticipated the loss of lots of things. Um, but one of the things that I... I didn't just underestimate how significant the loss would be. I actually just didn't even consider how significant the loss would be. And, and that's, that's the loss of joy. Wow. <laughs> it, it has been a, I don't want to say it has been a completely joyless year. There have been moments of joy for sure. And in fact, for our family, and I've heard this from lots of people, for our family, in some ways, it's been good. You know, it's been helpful for us. I think it's been polarizing for, for many families. It's been 
horrific. Yeah. Uh, and for some families, it's been actually really um, good and helpful. And and for us, we feel really fortunate. It's been a good thing for our family. So there have been moments of joy, but I get, you know, to use the big theological word, ecclesiologically speaking, man, it's been a joyless year. Uh, it's been sad. It's felt like heartache, you know, for, for over a year now of um, the loss of uh, uh, embodied presence with one another, the loss of hallway chit chat and water cooler talk. Um, I just read this uh, fascinating article in the Atlantic about how the pandemic has changed friendships. And by the title, I thought the author was going to, I thought the writer was going to get into like deep, meaningful friendships. And the entire article was actually about the psychological and emotional effects of our loss of like hallway friendships and like water cooler talk and acquaintances and um, like the chit chat with a barista, you know, at the coffee shop and yeah. all those sorts of things and how that deeply ha has deeply affected us. And um, so there's been a significant loss of, of joy. And so now that we're starting to come back, even like our staff slowly starting to come back to the office uh, one or two days a week, it's been like profound how significant that has been for, um, to use a secular framework, just for my emotional health to be around people. And it's not like we're sitting down having deep, meaningful, heart-to-heart -heart conversations all day. It's literally like I walk out the door and there's another human and we joke about how bad the Golden State Warriors are or something for like 10 minutes. And that, yeah. But it's like life-giving. And that's coming from me and I'm pretty introverted, you know? And so that was significant. And I think that that's been true uh, congregationally as well. I don't think that's just like a pastoral church leader thing. I think, I don't think I know. And certainly yeah. it's somewhat yeah. anecdotal, but it's also been anecdotal in a very like widespread, almost universal way that everyone I talk to, first of all, that has come back to in-person gatherings, they're, they're like, I needed this. Yeah. And they're not talking about the sermon. And and they're not talking about like the music. They're just talking about people. And then for those people who haven't come back yet, we've been making phone calls for the last week, calling everybody at our church that we can, like all of our pastoral staff. And everybody I actually get on the phone, they say the same thing. Like, hey, you know, people who haven't come back yet, they're like, we haven't come back yet. Either we're waiting for the vaccine to get our vaccine, or we're waiting for just the numbers to drop in terms of whatever hospitalizations or whatever. But we can't wait because we feel so disconnected and sad, you know? And so that, that, that was a big thing. Another thing, um, this is something I did think about when we were heading into the pandemic, but I, I think I underestimated was um, how, how deeply entrenched we become in our rhythms and habits. So, and a lot of people have talked about this and written about it already, but it's certainly been true in our context. And I think it's been true in yours as well. Like one year of, um, you know, disembodied ecclesiology has habituated us into a people who feel like this is normative. Like this is, and not just normative, but like adequate. And at worst, like it's awesome. You know, right. like, this is great. Like I just... And, you know, there's, I mean, we can go on and on about this, but there's this whole like world of strange, a new level of church 
hopping or church shopping that can happen when everything about yes. church is online. You know, if it takes me four clicks of a button to hop from this church to that church, I mean, man, at that point, church operates like Amazon. You know, I'm just scrolling, trying to find uh, the best deal on an electric toothbrush, you know, yeah. and so it is with church. And I think we've been habituated into that. I think we, without even consciously knowing it, we, we are, we think about church that way. So rather than a people to whom we belong, church feels much more like a product that we consume. And I think there's a great challenge for us as followers of Jesus, for all of us, and then specifically for pastors and church leaders to kindly and gently and compassionately, and at the same time, boldly and clearly um, and prophetically undo that habituation and rehabituate our people into um, embracing the church for what she really is, which is the bride of Christ to whom we belong. And in the local context, that means real people that you belong to, you know, even at your inconvenience, actually, that's a big part of the process. So uh, those are a couple, couple of big lessons. I think you asked for three. You... Two to three. You gave me two. I, I want to, I want to jump off of that last one. That's, I mean, yeah, the joylessness I've definitely, that's really interesting that you mentioned that one first. Cause I feel like there's a little bit of like, we want to skip past that now that we're able to gather again. We kind of don't want to have a funeral for the last year. We want to just, you know, there's some of that going on. So I love that you named that and just threw that out there. In that last one of the changing of habits, like what do you think we need to dedicate to now that the habits are going to start changing? Like what do Christians need to dedicate? You know, they might be super simple things like go to church or something, but like tell me from your from your perspective as a pastor speaking to to congreg your congregation like what habits do you want them to partake in now that things are starting to change yeah i mean i i guess before i get into like specific habits it strikes me that something like a pandemic like the one we've just been through and i think we've had other instances like this throughout um even our lifetimes but nothing quite as unique as, as COVID. I, I think what the pan, one of the things the pandemic did, it did lots of things, but one of the things is it um, completely, you know, we pre pandemic, we lived with, uh, we, we were constantly balancing um, uh, convenience and longing, you know? So yeah, <laughs> there's like all this, you know, there's lots of like on Twitter and there's tons of memes about, you know, like friends ask you to go out and, and <laughs> you're like, yeah, okay. Can't wait. I'll be there. And then it's like a meme of you in your PJs, just in bed tucked in. Cause, and what that meme does is it just points to that tension that we're constantly living in is like, there's the convenient thing. It's like really convenient and comfortable to just stay here in my, in my PJs. Like, I don't want to go through the work and the effort of like getting dressed and getting in my car and driving to a place. But then there's also the longing. There's just like the human longing. That's like, that's why the meme is funny, you yeah. know? Cause it, it was obvious. Like, do I, you know, it's like the dentist calls you and is like, Hey, can't wait to see you at your dentist appointment. It's like the meme's not really funny. Cause there's no real longing. It's just something you have to do. Um, well, in the pandemic, all of the longing 
not that the longing went away, but the opportunity to satisfy the longing went away, particularly when it came to our ecclesiology. So all we were left with was the convenient thing. And actually, we, we became entrenched in the convenience. Like the pandemic was hyper convenient in terms of church. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to get dressed up. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times people tagged our church on Instagram. And this is not a bad thing, but I can't tell you how many times people tagged our church on Instagram on Sunday mornings uh, with like their PJs on and a piece of toast and orange juice. And that was like their bread in their cup, you know, for communion. Yeah. And that's actually a beautiful, wonderful thing or whatever. Right. But uh, we, all we had was convenience, but now that we're, um, we have opportunity to satisfy the deepest sort of human longing that we have just to be with others, you know, uh, it's like, it's like we used to love sushi and then we didn't eat sushi for years and years. And now we've lost our appetite for it. And it's become an acquired taste again. Like you have it again. You're like, Oh, I don't like it. It's slimy and it's weird. And the texture's funny. And I, and I think that happened so quickly. It's only been a year, but I do think that that has happened. We've become so habituated to the convenience that although the longing still resides somewhere deep down in us, um, man, we're just not like people, our appetite for it is sort of gone, you know? So getting to the practical, I, I do think we have to um, worship and teach our way toward uh acquiring the taste again, specifically for, for churches. I think we have to, I just, I don't know that there's anything else we can do. I think we have to worship and teach our way to that and do so relentlessly, you know, and, um, and continue to invite people to taste and see essentially. Um, and to know that it's going to taste weird at first <laughs> and it's going to be yeah. strange, uh, cause you're not used to it. We've been rehabituated, but to tap into the reality that deep down inside of us, that longing is still there. And once, once we acquire the aptitude and appetite for it again, uh, we're going to come alive in, in brand new ways, hopefully. Do you think that some people will not ever get that uh, longing back or, or maybe not get the longing back or just stay satisfied with the digital gathering? And what would you kind of say to that kind of person? Cause I think what we're handling right now, I know you guys are dealing with this too, is still, because we're still in, in the midst of it in many ways, there's people who haven't gotten vaccinated, they're still not comfortable to come back, all that stuff. We totally get that. We are actually working hard to, um, yeah, to to shepherd both kind of groups, you know, through, through yeah, the hybrid model or whatever. Now you have to pick which one you're going to like emphasize a little bit more, you know, and for us, it's it's just a lot more work doing the the live gathering because we know we're welcoming real people we're trying to be safe under county protocols like we just have to put more hours and intention to the physical gathering um but that's going to change at some point right at some point and it's sounding like mid-june is what california is saying you know where it's like the restrictions are kind of going to lift at some point there won't be restrictions to come back what if when the restrictions lift, though, that person is still sitting without the longing, you know, one, do you feel like that's going to happen Two, what would your word be, you know, to, to, to that person? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I, I am concerned that there are some who are just so deeply habituated now in this new rhythm that they won't come back. I, I hope I'm wrong, but yeah. um, I would not be surprised if a significant uh, segment of, of our church congregations just don't come back, you know, um, and that's sad. In, in terms of leading and guiding those people who just feel so comfortable kind of in that place, I guess my, my greatest hope is that I, I do, and you know, and this comes back to sort of just, you know, the baseline, the deepest stuff, you know, like my theology tells me that we are made in the image of a relational God and therefore we are relational creatures. Even the most introverted amongst us, we're really, I mean, I'm, I'm really introverted. And again, I lost so much joy and just in the isolation. In fact, at the beginning of COVID, there was a part of me that was actually looking forward to the, to the, to the solitude, you know, um, I was like, oh, this might actually be nice for me. <laughs> and I was like, work from home. I built myself this little Ikea desk and I was pretty pumped, but it was like not long. It was just a few weeks into it that I was like, this is brutal. This is so crazy. Um, so I'm hopeful knowing that about myself and my own experience yeah. and yeah. having heard so many stories and read so many articles about Zoom fatigue and digital fatigue. Um, I'm hopeful that there is an undeniability to that sort of innate humanness in us, you know, the longing for other human beings. Um, so I'm hopeful that that will eventually sort of uh, take over. Um, I think it'll take longer for some than it, than it uh, will for others. The real concern actually is that as we've been um, sort of detached from the weekly rhythm of gathering with our, with our people in our church congregation, that as that longing for human connection arises in people, the, the greater concern is that they'll, they'll lean that longing in other directions, in directions that are not the body of Christ. Um, so, and I don't, I don't know, I don't yeah. have an answer to that, but other than to say, I think for churches, we have to be so clear uh, about re recasting and repainting the vision of Christian community in a way that um, that that exemplifies and, and speaks to uh, its unique beauty and place in a person's life um, in ways that other other things in life can't really satisfy, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a it's a tough question because I don't quite know. Um, I, I am concerned, but I'm also hopeful. No, I, I love that. I actually wanted to go there. Perfect segue. I wanted to talk to you about like w w one of the reasons I, I was honestly like knew I'd love your book. We're friends. I feel like it was going to be good. But one thing that really surprised me and captivated me just as a reader, man, was like the vision that you have for what church is. So can we go there a little bit and just talk about the irreplaceability of Christian community and the church specifically? Because I think another thing I'm seeing is that, and this was pre-COVID, right? 
these substitutions that you were talking about for Christian community, but even Christian versions of the substitution for the local church, which is just like me and my Christian buddies, we have beers every Friday night and that's my church or something like that. And can you just do a little bit of waxing that, that vision a little bit, you know, and just kind of shining that for us so that we can see what the church is going to offer us this next year that other things just won't offer us. Man, that's so good. Yeah. And I know you have uh, very strong opinions on this matter too. So um, feel free to jump in here because I love your thoughts uh, along these lines as we've talked over, over the years. And um, yeah, so that's a great point about, because <laughs> we all see them, you know, the, yeah. the Instagram photo of me and my three buddies with a beer over the, you know, the little fire pit in the backyard. This is my church or better yet, like the, the favorite coffee mug and, uh, the favorite, you know, Christian self-help book sitting at the beach alone and this is church today, you know, and <laughs> our, our mutual friend and brilliant New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, would adamantly say none of those things are church. <laughs> That's actually not church at all, not even he, in the slightest. He might even say it stronger than that. <laughs> if there's a stronger way to say it, he'll find it. <laughs> so, and what he means, and I think what we mean is not that those things are not good. Right. They're really, really beautiful, necessary even, you know, but they're not church. Um, they're not church. And a part of that, there's so much to say here. I mean, there's the, there's the sort of biblical, there, there's a whole primer on biblical ecclesiology we can get into in terms of what are the actual biblical components of church, you know, which are designed for our good, actually, you know, so that we are formed together into the image of the risen Christ. And there are um, guardrails uh, so that we actually have freedom. You know, that sounds like a paradox. There's also research, right? Like if you put no boundaries, everyone's actually um, petrified and enslaved, you know, but like with kids, there's all this like research yeah. and all these social yeah. studies that have been done about like, if you put boundaries around a playground, that's when the kids come alive and actually play. If you put kids on a boundaryless playground, they actually just get stifled and sit in one place because they don't know where they're supposed to go and not. And, you know, and, and so it is with the church, like in biblical ecclesiology, there are these boundaries and guardrails for our freedom and for our good. And, um, but beyond all of that, I think the thing that's most compelling for me is that the church is um, family. I mean, Paul, mm -hmm. you know, who wrote two thirds of the new Testament, arguably two thirds of the new Testament his go-to metaphor to describe um, Christian community is the language of brothers and sisters. And um, you know this, Chris, but, you know, semantic satiation has gotten the best of us. Like we call each other brothers and sisters all the time. And we like, that's so common, you know, it's such common language in, in the church that we just think that that's just something, it's just something we say. It's like, oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever. Yeah, sure. But in reality, when Paul uses that language, like in his context, in the first century Jewish world and the first century Greco-Roman world, the, the most important, far and away, the most important social bond in society 
was between siblings who shared the same bloodline of the same father. Like, and, and he's got this thing where he writes to the Corinthian church and it's super random. It's about lawsuits. Cause like suing each other back then was like just as common as it is today. You can go to their form of a court and be like, Hey, you, you know, stole my ox or whatever. So I'm going to sue you for this much or whatever. That was very common. And there's this super random part of one of Paul's letters to the Corinthian Christians. And he's like, Hey dude, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. <laughs> dude, why are you guys suing each other? Don't you remember your brothers and sisters? And yet you sue each other, like amongst the pagans. Like, what is that? Your brothers and sisters, like work it out amongst yourselves. And we read that and we just go, oh, there goes Paul again, using his normal, you know, Christianese brothers and sisters. What he actually means is in the ancient Greco-Roman world and in the judicial system, you could sue anybody, except if you went to court and they asked you about the person you were suing, the relationship. If you said that is my sibling and we share the same father, the court would boot you, boot you out because it was social faux pas for brothers and sisters who um, shared the same father to sue each other legally. Like socially, they wouldn't accept that sort of legal action among siblings. They wouldn't yeah. force you to work that out yourselves. And what Paul is saying is like, like you're not, so these Christians are suing each other because they're not legally in the eyes of society siblings. So they're allowed to sue each other. But what Paul tells them is you can't sue each other. You're brothers and sisters now. So whittle all that down. What Paul's essentially doing is when I say your brothers and sisters, that's not a happy poetic metaphor. You are literally bound by the bloodline of the same father, your father in heaven. Like you are actually, and that has pragmatic impact on your everyday life. You have to live in the everyday, even when you're angry at each other and you want to sue each other. Remember, you're siblings now. You can't sue each other. And so, so let's take that and consider the church today. It's like, when I, when I, I was just gone out of town a couple of weeks ago and uh, I was in Colorado for a few days. And so when I was there, um, the place where I was at had really bad Wi-Fi, but there was like one spot that had good Wi-Fi. So every evening I would go out to that one spot, which was outside. This is the mountains of Colorado. It's like 30 degrees, but I would stand there shivering, FaceTiming with my wife and my kids. Why? Because I wanted to see them. And it's actually quite convenient that I could see them and hear them on my phone. But um, you would think me a horrible dad if I told you, you know what? And that was good enough for me. I realized I could connect that with that with my wife and kids just on my phone. So why live with them? It's kind of a hassle. My kids are kind of messy. So I decided <laughs> to stay in Colorado. I'm still married. I'm still their dad. I just FaceTime with them. Super convenient. Like you would be like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. Because yeah. a good dad, what the FaceTime does really is it just makes you long to be with them, to hold my real kids and my real wife and my real arms, give them real hugs. Okay, so apply that now using Paul's principle of family and how family is literal. It's easy for us to say about the church and our brothers and sisters in the church. Well, I mean, we could just Zoom, right? It's like, well, yeah, that is pretty convenient. But would you say that about um, people you love? Like, would you say that about 
people in your family, would you say that about your spouse or your kids? Probably not. Now, then the rebuttal often is, but I don't feel that way about my brothers and sisters at church. I feel that way about my family, my literal family, but I don't yet feel that. So maybe one day if I feel that way, I will. Um, and that reverses the order of Christian formation, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot, and Chris, you know a lot about this. That's not how Christian formation works. Um, you and I are both big Dallas Willard fans, <clears throat> and Willard is one of the primary voices who points to this reality. We essentially practice and act our way into eventually feeling the thing that when fully formed, not fully, that'll be a lifetime, but when more formed into the image of Christ, we experience. But we don't feel our way to the action. We act our way to the feeling. So juxtapose all of that on top of each other, and it forces us to consider why it is we're so okay with just the casual, convenient online mediums um, while neglecting the longing and the calling um, to be with one another as family. Because you, what you're saying is so important. You're, when somebody says, I feel that way about my family, they don't understand that the decades or hours or, you know, you stack up the amount of time you have with your family growing up. The reason you feel the way you do towards your family is because you've just simply spent the most time with them. And somebody forced you to go on vacations when you were really little and you didn't like it. And then, and so what we're saying is the way we're formed through the family is going to be the way we're formed through the family of Christ, which is, hey, some Sundays you're going to feel like going to church. Other Sundays you're not, but you show up because we're a family. And, you know, I think the people you and I admire who are further down the road than us have incredible love for people they're just meeting at the church because they've learned that exact thing. And they've disciplined themselves to commit to showing up, you know, even when it's it's not convenient. Um, yeah. Okay, we could go a lot longer on that, I know. Let me let me switch gears a little bit because I really want to ask you this. I want to ask you about the sermon. The sermon. Uh, and what you've learned about it this last year. I want you to speak. You're a preacher, a very gifted preacher. I want to, like, from that angle of things. But also, as you've interacted with your church, that is something that I feel like in your book you have some really interesting comments on, and I think ones that I hadn't really thought about before um, in the ways that the sermon, what the sermon is there to do. So a lot of maybe people listening right now, it's like, man, the easiest part of Sundays over the last year has been the sermon. It's been nice. It's been good. I've been able to get some you know, information and stuff. But I know you have theology that's a little bit wider than that. Could you help us expand our vision of the sermon? But I'd also love for you to just like, what did you learn this last year as a preacher and also hearing from people as they listen to preaching online versus uh, what it's going to look like in person? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> for, I mean, first, I, I think before the pandemic, I had long thought about um, the sermon as I initially, when I first started preaching, and I think this is true for most of us, I was um, inordinately focused on the content of the sermon. And that's not bad. That's 
critically important. <laughs> the, the content shouldn't be, shouldn't be, it shouldn't suck. And it certainly should not be heretical, which takes a lot of work, right? Yes. So I'm not saying that that's not important, but I just, I focused an inordinate amount of attention on the content. What I did not do is focus enough, at least early on, on um, surrendering my feeble work in such a way that the spirit of God could take it and do the thing that only he could do because only he knows, for example, the inner workings of the lives, uh, the hearts and minds of the people who are going to listen and receive. Um, Dallas Willard, again, Willard had, had this beautiful quote and I heard it um, from, from another pastor who Willard once told this pastor, hey, listen, the most important thing about a sermon is actually what happens between the moment the words leave your mouth and before they enter the ears and the heart and minds of those who are there to receive. And what Willard meant was that the most important part of the sermon was not what you have prepared and the words you've spoken. And it's not even like, you know, the, <clears throat> the content being received. The most important part of the sermon is that unseen supernatural thing that happens as the spirit of God works and infuses the thing happening in the room to change lives. I mean, we, you know, every pastor preacher I know has this same exact story. Every single one has this story of preaching a sermon and feeling like it was the worst piece of garbage they've ever preached in their life. And then they get the email or the quick chat afterwards with someone saying, it felt like you were speaking right to me. And that was exactly what I needed. We all have those stories. And what that tells you is that that is the, that is the business that the spirit of God is up to each and every time a sermon is preached. Um, God takes our meager, feeble efforts and infuses it with uh, a sort of energy that um, only he can. Now, what that means for me, what, ha what it has meant for me is um, experiencing that exchange of the content I've prepared and then having it be received by a community of people having that exchange into a video camera rather than real people, I will say without hesitation has affected me. Yep. Like just in a practical way, my energy level, my wife told me actually um, <clears throat> maybe eight, nine months into the pandemic because she was just watching me on TV, you know, obviously on Sundays. And uh, she would say to me about eight, nine months in, she was like, you know what I noticed about your preaching during COVID? She said, you're not funny at all. And yeah. not, not that I'm like, I'm not like a hilarious preacher or anything, but, um, you know, there were always moments of, of levity and, and joy and, you know, and I, when she said that, I realized, I was like, oh yeah, I am a, I'm a totally depressing person to listen to right now. And what's crazy is you're nodding your head because I've heard so many friends of mine who are preachers say the same thing. We've lost our, our ability. And I think it's because, and I know this is true for you, Chris, we typically, neither of us write jokes into our sermons. 
if there's any moment of levity, and there always seems to be, it's because of something almost magical happening in the room with people, which is, again, goes back to our earlier, the earlier part of the conversation. It's just the hallway, like, you know, spontaneous. And I, dare I say it, I think that is a part of the spirit of God moving and working. I just read this like fantastic short little book from like the seventies by Elton Trueblood called the humor of Christ. Have you read that book? No. And he basically just gets into like, and he's doing like deep exegetical work. And he like unpacks the gospels in such a way where he's like, how come all our paintings of Jesus portray him as just this dour, sour, sad, serious, you know, glum guy. He's like hilarious. And this book is so fantastic. It's like, he shows how Jesus uses like satire and parody and extreme wow. metaphor to get some laughs. And yeah. he asks questions like, how come people brought kids to Jesus? Kids don't want to be around sour, glum, boring, you know, always serious people. And how come Jesus is like, no, 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 let the kids come to me. Let's hang out. It's like, we have a misconception. So even that, that's not just like moments of humor and joy in sermons, I don't think are just, they're not just like human moments in between the deeply spiritual God moments. Oh yeah, no, Humor yeah. And joy, that is like, it's all the spirit of God running us through the gamut of, of human emotion. And I've lost that, you know, during COVID. And it's so crazy how quickly it was regained once I started preaching in front of real people. I said the same thing, Ryan, our lead pastor and I were talking about that. And the first, after the first gathering, I was like, I missed jokes. I've missed jokes. Like I, and, and I think what I watch happen when people laugh, especially when I'm, when I'm not preaching and I'm not super worried about how people are responding, but I'm just sitting and receiving and I see people laugh. I see people's guards go down. Like people come to church, like they're kind of like a little anxious, maybe, especially if they're new. And they're like, who is this person? What are they saying? And when they laugh, what you're saying, the Spirit of God can use that to disarm them and bring them to an openness to where they can receive the word. And I think if there's one, you know, kind of thing I want to pull out from what you said, it's that to come back to church, like you don't have that opportunity online. You don't have the opportunity to, to drop your guard or even see somebody else laugh or see somebody else smile. And I think that's a huge part, both as a preacher and a listener, is that when we miss the reactions of others in the room, and it and and as a preacher, my goodness, if I miss the reactions of people, it it partly knows when I should lean into a specific moment is when I see people lean in or laugh or something like that. It's like I you can use that, and the spirit of God, it's it is it it works that way. You know, um, I want to want to wrap up here and 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 talk just about this at the end. Um, your next book, which I know, it's public, right? Yeah, you posted about it on social media. Yeah, yeah, it's called Analog Christian, as now as it's titled now, to follow up Analog Church. Okay, so let's end here for people. Um, I want to know: Can you give us kind of a preview into the ways in which you're going to be thinking about this subject? And this is the way I see it kind of different from this first book. And it's probably different in so many ways, but different from the first book one, in the sense that this sounds more personal than a communal call to like what we need to be together as the church. And by the way, I love the order. I love that you put the church first and then the individual second, 
So it sounds a little bit more individual. It also sounds to me, a uh, second big difference is you're going to have some reflections after this last year that are just going to be <laughs> like, you know, different. So give us a preview into that. Am I right that it's going to be different in those two different ways or, or what, what can we look forward to in that next book? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's actually a cookbook. So <laughs> it's just a bunch of very uh, different recipes and every recipe, um, the main ingredient is spam. So it's a spam cook. And it's, um, no, yeah, no, you were spot on, Chris. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, 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 I'm going to take, essentially, I'm going to land very early on just with Paul's words in Galatians um, chapter five, where he talks about these attributes of the fruit of the spirit. And they're not fruits of the spirit. They're not like nine fruits. Yeah. It's singular. There's a, the fruit of the spirit as the spirit of God does his work in us, forming us into the image of the risen Christ. Um, his fruit begins to bear in our lives. And that fruit, like, uh, like, you know, an elaborate dish or something has various flavors that all work together. And those are these, these nine attributes or characteristics. And what's fascinating to me is I, th I think um, in the digital age, and particularly with the rise of social media, there has been a lot undone in us as a society. And uh, in particular, so much undoing of um, necessary qualities of Christian character and discipleship, and virtue, and all those sorts of things. So I essentially what I'm trying to do in the book is I'm trying to confront very specific symptoms of our sort of digital addictions and proclivities, things like self-centric despair and comparison and contempt oh. and infidelity. And I don't just mean cheating on your wife, although I mean that, but infidelity, like even to the church, you know, the whole like, ah, I'm going to hop to this church and they don't give me what I want. So I'm going to hop to that church. And this is strong language, but essentially that is in some form, treating the bride of Christ like a prostitute, you know, I'm just going to go from one to the other. Yeah. So anyways, all these different things, and I'm going to try to juxtapose um, with these, if the spirit of God is alive and active and working in you, then actually these, these attributes will come alive in you that will confront and counter and eventually squash some of this other destructive stuff. So it is personal. Um, it's, it's much more pastoral but you know what's really interesting, Chris? I'm writing it now. I'm writing the first draft of the manuscript. And it just always goes back to community. Hmm. You know, like it is personal and it's for the individual reader. But in that, yeah. a part of the individual process of being formed into Christ, almost every chapter I'm like, but then this also happens and has to happen with others with your yeah. brothers and your sisters in the context of the church. And it's just like constantly coming back to that. So um, yeah, that's where I'm going. And uh, I, I hope, I hope it's helpful. It's been a lot more fun actually writing this book. I, just good to hear. I feel like I'm writing people, you know, so it's good times. Dude, that's awesome. I didn't know that framework with Galatians five that I'm very, very interested in that. That is really, really cool. And I can already see 
the threads of technology with some of those vices, if we want to do the virtue vice language, with the infidelity and all that stuff, how technology almost, um, yeah, uh, maybe maybe creates nice pillows around those vices and makes us feel comfortable about those things, whereas the church is kind of, the community of Christ is going to pull us out of those things into um faithfulness and love and peace and the things that come from the spirit wow okay great preview man when is that coming out by the way what's 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 the launch date on that i I think like late spring early summer 22 oh cool so in in book time that's that's nothing that's that's that people listening that are like wow it's a year away it's like dude that's actually you're you're close to it i love it um dude jay thank you uh so much i want to connect people to uh I, I know we've had a whole conversation about not being online and everything but i love the stuff you're posting online <laughs> and um i think you're actually a really thoughtful presence there you use it as a tool as you describe in your book not as some overarching way of life but how can people find you um online yeah um thanks for asking yeah uh, i have a little website it's just jkimthinks.com and um there's you know some of the stuff i'm working on there uh and then that's my handle on most on most social media platforms so you know instagram twitter facebook those are the only three i'm on instagram twitter facebook and it's just jkimthinks uh at all of those so not that i'm the only person that thinks it's just what i'm thinking about yeah <laughs> yeah dude thank you so much uh love knowing that you're just like a few miles away leading a faithful church and um our churches are, are deeply connected in many ways so love you brother in the lord man thank you uh i'll t- use that language to close it up yeah cool. no i have deep respect for you chris and for ryan and the whole crew and obviously um deep deep love you're you know awakening is a part of my history so yep have i have deep respect and love for for your entire church community so thanks thanks man